0: Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to claritin right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius from I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. up everybody welcome to today's episode oh my gosh uh so uh this is an awesome episode got to interview Emily belchettis NYU a professor wrote the book Clearer Closer Better um how successful people see the world and it's it's super fascinating how we use our vision our eyesight to actually s- set and then hit our goals and we go through a bunch of different systems that she talks about in the book about how we actually use visuals like, like how we look at things to accomplish these super hard things in our life and, and talk about tons of fun stuff, um, how she played with the band Goldfinger in high school, um, world record holders, how they use eyesight, all the different frameworks she talks about in the book. So um, stay tuned. Awesome episode. You're going to love it. Help you hit your goals. Stay tuned. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mishazde. and Boy, do we have an amazing guest. My main woman, Emily Balchetis, is in the house. What's up, Emily? Hey
1: there. Hi.
0: I don't think I've said main woman before. That sounded weird. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: caught me by surprise too, but I'll take it. That's a good That,
0: that was awkward. I said something super awkward to Jordan Harbinger once, and th- th- but it was worse than that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Emily, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here.
1: Thanks.
0: So, um, look, for listeners who are new to the show... Um, Greatness machine, really about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so but despite the odds. And I'm so psyched to have Emily here. I, Emily, do you mind if I give a little bit of how I found your work? Is, you, give, right. I love giving my origin story. And then when then from there, I'd love for us to talk a little bit about your origin story. Does that work for you? Yeah, totally. Awesome. So um, I was uh, doing what I do, doing my thing. And I was on social. And I saw Andrew Huberman was interviewing Emily and I was like, man, this, this this lady is sharp as a razor. And your the work that you're talking about in your new book, I, uh, all, uh, which we're gonna be talking about on the show today, uh, clearer, closer, better. I was like, I'm super interested in this. And and so, uh, clearer, closer, better is about how successful people see the world. And I'm I've been on this journey the past couple of years about like really like how do I want to make my impact on the world like in the, in the maximum way possible? So I've been consuming book after book. And so I bought your book and dove right in and I was like, Oh my gosh, I need to get her on the show. So (laughs) I, I, I I think I like binged half your book in like one evening. Um, and, and, and then I hit up my assistant I was like, Hey, uh, can you reach out to her and see if she'll come on the show? So (laughs) that's, that's how we're all here right now. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Um so yeah, man, your book's really great and I'm really excited to get into that with you. But um for those of you guys that are not familiar with Emily, um it's Emily Balchetis. I asked her how to pronounce your name properly before the show started. Cause... It's actually
1: Balchetis. Oh gosh I... <laughs> That's all right. We did cover it, but uh, you know, oh! performing or something you've got in the way of of your your top game there.
0: Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Belchettis I yeah. should have gosh, Darius. No, it's you know, no, no. I am on my B++ game right now. <laughs> um, so Emily is Associate Professor of Psychology at NYU. She received her PhD from Cornell University in 06. I've uh, been featured all over the place. Forbes, New York Times, uh, Newsweek, excuse me, NPR, Scientific American, The Atlantic. So lots of great uh, people out there following your work. And now we're going to be talking about the book, Clear, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World, that just came out in 2020. But man, you are out there making some waves in the world.
1: Thanks.
0: Yeah, and That's the goal. That is the <laughs> goal. Um, so if you don't mind, like, you know, like, I don't think people just stumble into the world of writing books and becoming professors. How did you know? give us a little bit of your origin story? I know we're going to be talking about some of it uh, in some of my some of my questions today. But, but yeah, give us some of your background and origin story, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, cool. So I'm a behavioral scientist. I, you know, and with with my day job, I get to ask questions about what makes people do what they do. And, uh, you know, this is work that we've been doing for about 20 years in my lab, a big research team of scholars, artists, uh, advocates, public policy people, of course, researchers, writers, uh, really fun, eclectic group that are all bringing their unique perspective to trying to understand how can we help people uh, figure out what the obstacles are that are standing in their way of doing their best work of, of meeting their goals that they're setting out to accomplish in this world but like, I started wanting to be a rock star. That's my, if we're going back in the day, like that's my origin story. I studied music um, forever. I, you know, I have a music performance degree. Actually, I wanted to be a rock star. I played with a band. Um, everyone plays with a band, right? In high school, ours was a cover band of like some punk ska groups um, that were big at the time that I was in high school, and got to play one really awesome show with the band that we loved, that we were so into. Uh, in the Warped tour, we, the, the work tour was coming through. We played one one gig with this with uh, with the band in, at the work tour. There were fifteen thousand people out in the audience, and I like oh. had my like my hit right. Like this is like yes, this is what I want in my life. Um, But I was also in marching band. And so like, when you wear that big, funny hat, you know, (laughs) life sort of is like, no, you don't get to be in both worlds at the same time. So uh, yeah, so my, 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 my career went towards psychology instead. And I love it because it gives you the tools of science. You're able to ask questions about why people do what they do and how can we help them do it better um, and find out what's true, right? We cannot, we all have our anecdote stories. We all have beliefs about like what works for us, but whether those are right and true and work for yourself or the majority of people or no one is hard to self-assess. Like that can be challenging for us to introspect and know what really works for us. So that's why uh, you know I'm a firm believer in what science can bring us, and why I've de- dedicated my life's work to using that approach to understand how we can help ourselves and help others.
0: I, I love that. Um, well, first of all, I think you're being humble because. You didn't say the name of the band, which is Goldfinger. Yeah, right? it was fun. But it was
1: an awesome group to, that,
0: get to play. So, 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 so you got to play. You went on stage. You and your friends went on stage, and and you were a saxophonist. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and 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 um and what was it like? Why did you decide like like rock stardom wasn't for you?
1: Well, I don't have any tattoos. That's one thing. So I know I don't like <laughs> look the part and. Uh, you know, I really, um, I can't really stomach the drugs and the alcohol, the lifestyle is not really for me, but the adrenaline rush was, um, and I like a little bit more stability in my life than I think uh, me in that position of have would have brought to my life.
0: Yeah, I, I just finished reading David Grohl's autobiography, and like when you read what he what they had to do to build that band, you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping in a van and going from gigs a lot. To your point, drinking and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so totally. now so now you are a behavioral psychologist. You know, mm-hmm. for the layman who doesn't know what that means, what is what is a behavioral psychologist? What what do they do?
1: Right. So, I mean, usually like when I go to parties and people ask, what do you do? I try to use other words other than leading with psychologists because they instantly think of clinical psychology and think that like, all right, people come in, they lay down on my couch. I mean, sometimes they do because they're tired or like I'm laying on the couch, but not in a clinical therapeutic setting. We're not here to unpack like what happened with your mom when you were a kid or your birth trauma. That's not the kind of psychology that I do. I don't know how much you love or you don't love your parents just by looking at you. Um, But again, what we do is like design situations, scenarios in our lab uh, or find them out in the real world and and collect real data on people's actual behavioral responses to those different situations, trying to see like if we create this context where we throw an obstacle in the way. Um, how do people get around it? Can we give them the tools to get around it using random assignments? Some people are given this tool. Some people are given a different tool kind of in the same way that you test whether drugs are effective. There's like the new drug you're testing. And then there's a placebo sugar pill. And does the real drug work better than a sugar pill? We use that same kind of setup, but to understand human behavior and collect lots of data on lots of people do fancy math, and then have the answer about whether this intervention, this drug, or this particular behavioral nudge that we're giving, um, gives a bigger bang for the buck than that sugar pill, placebo, other experience that we're testing against.
0: Okay. And so, um, so I guess I'm, I'm assuming, um, that that is what led you down the road of writing this book clearer, closer, better. Would, yeah. would you mind kind of giving us maybe the, the, what, what, what motivated you to do that? Like, like writing a book is no small feat. I've written a book. It's a lot of work. Like, yeah, yeah tell us about that.
1: Well, probably overconfidence is what led me to write the book. I thought like, you know <laughs> what? I like talking to people. I'm pretty good at it. I can explain the science that we do in a way that like my mom can understand or people who don't like science or, you know, aren't, aren't into it the way that I am, so they understand what we're doing and see the value in it. Um, And then my overconfidence made me think that I could write a book because I can talk so I can write. And that couldn't have been further from the truth, to be honest. So, you know, my agent and my uh, editor sure let me know that, nope, writing a book is a whole different style um, than the way that you naturally think or the way that you think is best to communicate those ideas. But, you know, once I once I came to that point where that realization was clear, I was already so in the weeds on this that I doubled down and um, learned, you know, learned how to learn how to communicate in a different way to get these ideas out. And I, re- I wanted to write this book because, you know, so many awesome researchers are doing a lot of great work on, um, on identifying, like, what do people think is the right way to best meet their goals? How do you set those goals in the first place? What do you do when something gets in your way and you're thinking about quitting? Why don't we quit when we should? Why do we quit too early? Uh, and can we offer any insights that are likely to help? Um, based on what we know to be true from science. So, you know, I, I just feel like a personal responsibility to share what scientists have learned, what we have learned in our labs. So many thousands and thousands and thousands of people were integral in making this work happen. Of course, our research team, but all the people who participated in these studies for us to be able to disentangle what's true, what's not true, that we owe it to the world to share what we have learned as a scientific discipline and and give people the tools that might be beneficial for them. So, you know, that's like the high level sort of philosophy on why I think it's important for scientists to share their work and why why I wanted to. But I also wanted to try these out myself and see, Mm. like, what does work? Like when I become my own guinea pig, what works for me? What doesn't work for me? So a lot of the book is like, you know, chronicling my own experience of a challenging time in my life, setting a new goal for myself and everything I'm saying, like, hey, science says this should work, like, you know, checking in uh, with myself, testing it out and letting letting people know, like, you know, the real truth of like, did this work for me? Did it not? And why do I think that it didn't or what what helps it become a successful tactic for me to use? So you get the nitty gritty on, on what was it like when I tried this out myself when at a really, you know... Difficult
0: point in my life. I took on a, a new goal. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. and Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life. From canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. So, um, you know, in the book, and and I don't know if we'll, we'll talk about that goal or not, but, um, but, you know, you talk about visual experiences. I mean, mm-hmm. and that, this is the part that was like, kind of like a, whoa, I never thought, you know, there's a lot of woes. I never thought of things like that way that like this is when I was reading your book, at least I, I was like, Oh, I never thought of that. Oh, that makes sense. Right. But you talk about visual experience and how we use like, you know, what we see to then go and motivate us to achieve. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and as well, as well as creating happiness, overall productivity, all these things. Tell us about that. Tell us about how you stumbled upon this being the, the thesis for the book. And, and, and I mean, cause it's not like as obvious as one would think.
1: Yeah, right. And I think that's the key is that it's not these suggestions that I give are all rooted in our visual experience. And that's the beauty of this book is that it is not the obvious thing to think to tweak when we're trying to figure out what are some new tactics I can use because I keep having the same problem and I need a new way forward. People don't think about using their visual experience. You know, when we start thinking about like, what should I do? what, what What's going to help motivate me more? Like the common strategies are often like, Talk to yourself in encouraging ways. Continue to remind yourself of why you're doing this thing. Um, you know, get an accountability buddy who's going to help you remember why you're doing all of this. All of those tactics are really effortful. They're like a goal in and of themselves. Like to make progress on this other goal, I have to form three th- three additional complementary goals. All of that takes a lot of mental work. It takes a lot of commitment and perseverance. Um, and, and when that like support system for our original goal fails, then so too does the original goal, right? We're kind of setting the deck, um, stacking the deck against ourselves for success when we're making it really hard for us to work through the natural challenges of trying to, to pursue a goal by using these effortful, uh, labor intensive strategies. So that was sort of what is going through my mind is I'm thinking about what are other things that we can do that can help sort of automate, make better habits, Um, And help 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 us to like, like make those choices without making the choices that align, and will help us pursue our goal without having to be so effortful about all of them. Uh, And that's where visual experience comes into play. Vision is super cool. Like, of all of our ways that we get thoughts and information into our brains, like, vision is the most important and prioritized sense we have. More of our neurological real estate is taken up by visual processing than anything else. Like, how much brain space is needed for us to make sense of what we touch, of what we smell, of what we hear? far less than the amount of brain space that responds to our visual experience. And we have like a superpower of, of vision that we can see the international space station, 250 miles up in the air. You can see a flickering candlelight. If this, if the, if the atmosphere is clear, if our, if our, air is clear, like over 30 miles away, like yeah. vision is amazing. And if we can harness that superpower that we have, maybe we can help ourselves, um, form the better habits that are going to help make progress on our goals.
0: So, so like, uh, and, and that's a part where I think for maybe someone who hasn't read the book or is probably asking themselves right now, it's like, well, I don't get it. Like, just cause I can see something how does that help me like reach my goals? Right. right. Uh, is it that they're being able to see it in real life helps them then formulate it in their mind's eye later. Like, like tell us a little yeah. bit about like, cause I'm still like, like uh, uh, this was a, uh, for me, I'm, and I'm a person that loves connecting the dots. I was like, how did you connect these dots? Right. That like, cause mm-hmm. I see something that then helps me motivate me, create goals. I, I love the idea of it being automated to your point. I'm opening my eyes. If I'm, if I'm a visual person, which most people who are not blind are, then I'm seeing no matter what. Right. Right. But how do we go from, okay, I'm seeing to then leveraging that so that automatically it's creating more outcomes that I want?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a direct connection between perception and action, what we see and what we do. You know, a common example is just like, you know, think about your commute home. If you drive or if you walk, I mean, if you commute, I bet (laughs) you can get from your work to your home without having to think about every turn that you need to take, every red light that you're going to hit. And then you go left or you go right. Right you know, how far do you go straight before there's going to be a bend in the road? You just do it, right? And then if you get home and you re- and you like think about what did I see along the way? What did I, you know, what choices did I have to make to make sure that I got home? Probably you can't recollect that because yeah, you're seeing the whole time. You weren't driving or walking with your eyes closed, but there was a direct connection between what you're seeing and then what you're doing when you turn left, when you turn right, and you didn't have to think about it mm-hmm. because that's become an automated habit, Right, where we can cut out that middleman of having to think or make a choice. At this red light, should I choose left? Or should I choose right? At this stop sign, should I choose straight, left, right, or should I turn around? We're not doing that because we have taken out that middleman. We directly connect perception to action. Now, how does it relate to goals? Well, we can think about the goal to um, to to be healthy. What stands in the way of that? For a lot of people, it's mindless snacking. When does that urge hit us most? Like in the afternoon, right around three o'clock, four o'clock. We're getting tired. Lunch is worn off. Dinner's not quite here yet. We haven't had a nap. Maybe hope we probably haven't had a nap before at work. Um, and so, what do we do? We go during COVID times, or if we work at home, then we go to our kitchen, right? And we sort of are mindlessly perusing what's in our pantry or what's in our fridge. And you're going to pick the thing that probably stands out to you. you're not digging into the back of your fridge to find that bag of carrots. You're not mm-hmm. like looking at the calorie counts of all the different snacks, the dry snacks that are in your pantry. You're just quickly looking and grabbing something that like catches your tummy's interest right now. And for a lot of people, those are the snacks that they probably want to cut out. Snacking is probably what they want to come up, cut out in the first place, but then they're choosing something that's probably not the healthiest snack at that time. That's something that Google noticed with its employees was that with all of these awesome like snack stations and beverage stations that they have littering, um, you know, the hallways in their campuses, they were noticing that all those snacks, yeah, were keeping their employees here rather than leaving, going out or going home earlier. Um, so it was doing that part of its job. But it was it was increasing their employees weight. People were, were unhealthy. They were unsatisfied with their health and fitness because of those snack stations. They switched out the visual experience and they didn't take away the M&Ms or the Full sugar sodas, but they made them harder to see. They put the unhealthy drinks on lower shelves in the um, in the refrigerators. They put like the M and M's and the and the sweets and um, you know the the junk foods in opaque containers that weren't clear. So they're still there, but they made it a little bit harder for people to see them. And what they found by checking in with the people who restock those those um, snack stations was that consumption of the unhealthy options decreased substantially within a week. It's not like they had to roll out some new messaging and campaigning and saying like, hey, let's all care about our health. And these are foods that are bad. They didn't do any of that. They simply made it a little bit more challenging to see the, the unhealthy choices and consumption dropped dramatically. So that's an example of how like perception is directly connected to action and that a lot of what we're doing in our life, we're not putting in a ton of thought to, we're sort of going on our impulse We're, you know, our mind is wandering or, you know, we're we're ruminating over something else. Like, what am I going to have to do tonight with my kids? Are they going to have homework or what am I going to make for dinner? And so you're not effortfully thinking, what am I going to do in response to the visual information that I'm getting right now? We just sort of act on autopilot um, uh, based on what it is that we're seeing.
0: Oh, So, uh, you know, you just reminded me that there's a Tiny Habits book by B.J. Fogg. Have you read mm-hmm. that book before? Yeah, so he yeah. he has he has a statement where he says, you know, you want, if you want to eat healthy, you know, you know, bring an apple, put it at the end of your desk every day. And he says, notice I, I didn't say eat the apple. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's right. to your point. Right. There's a there's this thing where if I just see an apple sitting at my desk, like sooner or later, like it's there. I see it like I don't have to think about it. I'm just going to eat it. Right. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um Right. You know, At the foot I, of your I,
1: bed, right? You can, you probably have slippers. If you have anything, there's probably slippers. Why don't you swap them out for running shoes instead? So the first thing that you see when you get up in the morning is a suggestion to, to get a few more steps in rather than a lounge around. That's another you know thing about like just being intentional about crafting our visual environment can trigger a different kind of action.
0: Do you think like, like, so that I know people who, when they're trying to get in shape, will like paste, and i um, lack of a better word, I'm saying say something a little bit crude, like a fat picture of themselves like <laughs> on their fridge. Right. And they do that because they're like, every time they go to the fridge, they're like, they'd see that and it changes their behaviors. I mean, is that like a crude representation of what you're talking about essentially?
1: Yeah. People use those kinds of visual reminders uh, in many different ways. So you gave an example of one that might be like a downward social comparison. Like, Oh, that's what I used to be like. I don't want to go back there. Uh, um, you know, and, and, and thinking about like that, that maybe darker place in, in their life Um, Other people use positive imagery to motivate themselves. They'll put up a picture of somebody else representing where they want to be in the future or, you know, some sort of visual icons that reflect what um, a dream completed would look like. What's my life going to look like if I can, you know, check off everything on my bucket list and they'll sort of use that like visual imagery to to a positive imagery to motivate their choices. People might call those vision boards or dream boards also. Um, And those are effective for maybe helping figure out what your goal is, but they're actually Mm -hmm. not effective for helping motivate and sustain the choices um, that we need To make in order to hit those goals. When we just are left sort of fantasizing about what do I want in my life, either through that sort of negative downward social comparison or positive imagery uh, visuals, um, we sort of like vicariously consume that desired future experience. We like put ourselves in there like, oh yeah, that is what my life is going to be like if I don't go back or if I do go forward and hit that. And it's sort of like a moment of relief. Like, I know the direction I'm going. This is the course that I'm on, and that's going to be my life. In fact, colleagues of mine at New York University measured what happens in people's bodies when they do that, when they, um, when they sort of like, like mentally mentally position themselves in that, in that goal-completed state. They measured systolic blood pressure. No, that's the bottom number. Sorry, it's the top number on your blood pressure reading, mm-hmm. and it's the body's indicator of of uh, it's the psychological indicator of your body's readiness to do anything to like get up and do something. Um, it, it like systolic blood pressure goes up in racehorsing race horses like right before they're about to be released from their gates and, you know, run at their fastest pace, like they're not moving in those gates, but systolic blood pressure is going up in anticipation of doing something that's related to their goal, to the next task at hand. Systolic blood pressure also goes up for people when we're about to do something mentally challenging, like really focused to do some hard math problems. I'm just sitting there, but my brain is going to need to do something to help achieve this next goal. So what my colleagues found was that when people start doing that, thinking about oh that's what my life is going to look like, so long as I follow this course and and when my goal is realized, systolic blood pressure went down. Again, their body is like is indicating you know what I can chill out now I can relax because I'm I'm the right course this is the path that I'm headed towards I know what my goal is and it feels good to think about what it's going to be like when I hit it. We are sort of de-energized physiologically unmotivated to take the next steps when we sort of Mm -hmm. mentally savor or or fantasize or daydream about what that, what that happy future is going to look like.
0: So, so I guess uh, and I'm a person that never ever believed in dream boards ever. And then I read this book called the power of one more where he's like, do you give yourself the gift of dreaming? I'm like, Oh, I don't really do that. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to savor it to your point, it's a little like, like, like treat I give myself. So I created one on Pinterest. And so let's, let's use, I mean, you don't want to see mine. It's ridiculous, but um, I do. And I'm (laughs) going to
1: look it up as soon as they're off this call. uh, (laughs) So
0: it's, it's like, it's, it's awesome. There's some awesome stuff. Like, it's like, I want to go see the Aurora Borealis again. Right. Um, So like, let's use the Aurora Borealis as an example. Like I look at the Aurora Borealis and it makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And then I want to go see it up in Iceland or Greenland or something like that. So to your point, maybe at my my blood pressure goes down and I get this happy feeling. Would it be better if I like if I, in order to achieve that, like, let's, I don't know how do I use something visually to achieve that goal? Because mm-hmm. if we use the running example where you're saying, hey, put your running shoes by your bed. For me to go to Aurora Borealis, do I need to put like buy tickets to Iceland next to my desk? Like what what would be the, I mean, literally,
1: yes, because if you just put on that dream board, what those, you know, what those twinkly lights look like floating around in the sky. Yeah. You're super jazzed and you're reminding yourself like, yes, I really want to do that. But, but by just simply telling yourself, I really want to do that. You're no closer to actually doing it. You have to couple that dream with concrete action planning. So, which is the suggestion you gave? Yes. You need to tell yourself, I need to buy tickets to Iceland. You also then have to take the next step, which is the often overlooked component, which is, all right, what's what are the obstacles that are going to stand in my way of doing these concrete Mm. things or achieve or like making progress towards that bigger, more abstract goal of seeing the aurora borealis, right? What's going to stand in your way? Uh, I have to carve out time in my schedule and like not book any new interviews for my podcast this week, right? That's my vacation week. The obstacle that's going to stand in my way is that I'm never, I don't have free time. There is never a week in my calendar where I don't have something important to do for me to be able to take that trip. What else is going to stand in my way? All right, tickets to Iceland are super expensive, right? So I have to start saving. You have to start thinking about what those obstacles are so that you can troubleshoot them enough in advance so that by the time you really can sit down and buy those plane tickets you do have the money in your bank account so that when you're looking at the dates on kayak or wherever you buy your plane tickets that you already know the dates that are going to be allocated for that trip so when we just stop with putting up a pinterest image of the aurora borealis we we are no more likely to actually make it there because we haven't done the legwork in advance to set us set ourselves up for success so three steps, dream big, make that Pinterest board, think concretely about what what you need to do in order to hit that goal and foreshadow the obstacles, the things that would lead to failure um, if you don't have a plan B or, or think about how you're going to move your way through this obstacle should, should you experience it. There's a great
0: wanna, example. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, no, I was going to say, I, I'm going to run this through because um, I have a volcano cave house I want to buy in Tuscany. I don't know how mm-hmm. to do that yet, but but it's only my dream board. But no, but but I, I get what you're saying is that, hey, look, like savor that outcome, but it's these steps that are going to derail you from hitting success. And then how do you connect the visual side of that? Is the visual side of that the like... What do I visually have to see to create those, to mitigate those outcomes? Is that what you mean?
1: Right. So, uh, so we, we do need motive. We do need visuals to help motivate ourselves through those different stages. So like your suggestion was I'm going to, you know, next to my desk or next to my computer, I'm going to put a note that says buy the tickets. Yeah. Right. That's a visual that your natural strategy that, that you came up with, with, with something that is based in visual experience. You weren't going to rely on your memory. Oh yeah. Just like mental note, buy those plane tickets. That wasn't your go-to thought about what should I do because uh, the evidence does suggest that when we are seeing it, it's more likely that we're going to do it. We can think about how that plays out in terms of allocating our time. So again, if you just leave yourself with a mental note, oh, I need to buy those tickets to Iceland, you know, is today the day I'm going to do it? Oh, if I look at my, my schedule today, I am booked back to back to back to back. I don't have 20 minutes to figure out how am I going to get to buy those tickets to Iceland unless we carve out time in our calendar and, 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 you know, set an appointment with ourselves for those things that we might otherwise be leaving mental notes for, it's far less likely we're actually going to get to them. We prioritize what we see. We prioritize those things that are in our calendar, those meetings that we've set with other people, Um, And if we do that for ourselves, then we're far more likely to get the job done. Like, I'm not going to bail on this interview because you are in my calendar, right? Right. There's a million other things that I need to be doing. But right now, because you're in my calendar, I get the joy of chatting with you right now. We prioritize what we see. And one of those things that we see is um, how we're going to allocate our time as determined by the way we set up our own schedule for ourselves.
0: I love that. And then I think you're making such a great point about setting appointments with ourselves. Like that was actually first thought I had was I'm like, well, I have to go and put it in my calendar if I'm going to if I'm really going to do a trip. I'm going to put it in my calendar. I might have to put it in my calendar. How am I going to pay for it? I need to go, you know, do more projects or sell something or whatever that is. But to your point, like those are real action steps people can do. And most people, they don't do that. They do the last part, which is like, hey, put a picture of Aura Borealis in your Pinterest board, go -hmm. back to sleep and say, and don't accomplish. Right. So I love those steps. You were going to give a really good example, and but I interrupted earlier. Yeah, it's
1: totally. My, Let I me mean I mean, just it. add to this also of like, you know, there's a way that we can optimize how we use our calendar. Probably what I'm suggesting is intuitive for people of like, yeah, like don't just keep it in your mind, write it down. A lot of people use to-do lists, put it in your calendar, you're far more likely to actually get it done. Yeah, that resonates with probably a lot of us. Maybe we don't do it, but maybe this is a nudge to actually do that to, like, create appointments for ourselves, to carve out that time in our calendar for ourselves and the things that are nagging on our own minds. But we also need to be thinking um, with, you know, one of the suggestions I talk about in the book is taking, a uh, like, a wider frame that we need to, have like, expand our, our focus of attention. Um, and when we think about that with our calendar, that means planning out in advance, So, you know, Sunday night comes, we're thinking about what the week holds. For a lot of us, if we're super stressed, we start looking myopically, thinking myopically. All right, I just got to get through today or I just need to get through tomorrow. And then I'll deal with Tuesday later or I'll deal with Friday later. But right now, I can't. I got to get through today. Today is super stressful. That's the problem is that when we have this, when stress leads us to sort of hone in and focus on the immediate concerns right now. We we aren't able to optimize the time that actually is available that we might have a little bit later on. So instead, what I suggest, and we in fact tested the effectiveness that, of this in our lab, was to, you know, Sunday night comes, think about what are the big things that are looming on your plate, what are the goals that you have. In this case, we had people focus on just one goal that's really important to them, and list the concrete steps that they can take in the next, um, you know, in the next amount of time that's going to help advance progress on that goal. When uh, and we had for one week, everybody just thought, "Okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? Where can I schedule in time into my calendar to work on these concrete steps?" At the end of the day, everybody reported how much time they spent on those concrete tasks to help advance their goal. That was like our control condition, the sort of the sugar pill condition. I think that's what people do when they're stressed: is they they think about time more myopically. We tested the effectiveness of a different strategy, though. On Sunday night, what's this big project that you've got going on? What are some concrete actions that you can take that will help advance your progress? And now start thinking about Monday. Think about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Carve out time in those days that you can schedule for yourself when you can work on these different actions. Every night, they reported on how much time they spent. And what we found is that over the course of the week, when everybody thought about time and thought about their schedule in that wider frame, thinking about it in terms of the week, planning for the week, they found two and a half more hours to work on their project compared to when they were thinking more myopically and planning their day, looking looking at their calendar day by day. Everybody got time in. It's not like they didn't do anything and then they had two and a half hours. No, when people started planning and thinking strategically and using their calendar, everybody spent more time working on this goal, but they spent even more time when they had uh, planned out their schedule for uh, a week in advance. Two and a half more hours than the number of hours that they had that they were able to spend, even when they were just planning using their more myopic strategy. And importantly, that worked for like two thirds of people.
0: Two thirds of people. What, what, what was the increase? Like two and a half hours? Like. As opposed to how many hours?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was quite variable because everybody scheduled in the project and the magnitude of their project was really different. So, you know, that's the average increase uh, above and beyond, like some people were spending, you know, five hours, 10 hours or 15 hours, but they found an additional two and a half on average.
0: Okay. I mean, that, that's real. I mean, it, That's in super any real. Three. If
1: somebody could give me two and a half more hours, right, I would give them a pot of gold. Two and a half hours right now as I'm trying to like – you know, we all have a lot on our plate, right? You know, I'm directing this, this lab um, and, you know, working on getting these ideas out there. I've got two little kids. I've got family and friends that I'm responsible to. And, you know, if someone were to give me two and a half more hours, like, thank you. Thank you. I would
0: love it. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. All the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Well, you're you're making a, you know, like... I'm I'm a trained in conscious leadership, and one of the things we teach is like you know time blocking, using your calendar, and and how do you att- attention management, if you will. And this is really an idea around attention management. Where am I focusing my attention? And and the the data shows to your point, like what we tell people is I'm like, look, you'll get between one and five hours of your week back if you have strong attention management, right? Mm-hmm. And and that adds up, like two and a half hours. That's not much, Darius. Yeah, it is. That's half an hour a day. To go work out if you're not working out, or to, to take right. those steps to do the things that you're talking about, so that, that that's, that's that's some real numbers and two and a half hours times fifty two weeks, we're talking real time then, right? right. So yeah. I, I love I love that. Yeah, nice. um, you know, you 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 make a mention of in the book that what we actually see and what is actually there that there's often misrepresentations, and that our brain fills the gaps. Um, but they then you go on to say that we can actually take advantage of those misrepresentations to help achieve like mm-hmm. tell us about this
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of visual illusions out there on on social media, right? That 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 sort of lay the stage for this idea. Um, the blue gold dress thing, right? That went viral a couple years ago. That like divided up families and friendships because like, <laughs> I love, like that dress is definitely blue, right. or that one, like I don't know, because I only see the blue, so I can't even uh, gold, whatever, right. whatever. Think, other
0: people, I think it was. I, I saw the blue. I think.
1: Yeah. Right. So that was a super divisive picture because, you know, first of all, it was just like photographed in really poor lighting. Um, But interesting lighting for those of us that study these kinds of issues. What what the what what the deal was, was that like the the lighting conditions were super weird and then the photography was um, a you know, like poor quality. And what our brain was trying to do was like figure out what, how is this picture lit? How is this dress lit? Is it lit with like indoor, uh, you know, like fluorescent lighting or is it coming from natural lighting that has a different hue, right? Different saturations of color. And so that's how you can get two people seeing totally different color schemes on this dress is because it was ambiguous input. Like we didn't like, what is this dress? How, like, what is this picture, um, how, how is it composed? Your brain is trying to figure that out. Even if our, if we, even if we aren't intentionally doing that and would, it, if your brain made a different assumption about the lighting conditions, it would have like cleared it up, right? Like remove some of that ambiguity to have you see it in a particular way and have somebody else see it in a very different way. If their brain made a different inference about how this is lit, there's, um, you know, one that just recently went around that people pulled. Actually, I didn't make this image, but I used it in some of our science and people pulled it from my work. It was something where you can see a, a line drawing as a horse uh, or you see it as like the full body of a seal. Very different creatures. Right. But in that very same drawing, people were super divided about what they saw. Is this a drawing of a horse or is it a drawing of a seal? And that was like a recent instantiation of this blue dress. Um, situation where, you know, our first on first pass, like maybe you see the horse, most people did. And they were like flummoxed by anybody who said that they saw something else. How does this play out in the real world, though, outside of these like wonky images that show up on our social feeds? Well, I got some insight into this once when I was um, chatting with some like Olympic athletes, I had the chance to talk with some of the world's fastest runners, like the fastest guy out of Trinidad, somebody who trained along Hussein, Lightning Bolt, the fastest human on the planet. Like amazing people, all these guys had—they're all guys—had uh, had won you know Olympic gold, silver, bronze medals like multiple times. Super humble, lovely men um, who who are happy to answer my weird questions as a scientist. Now I went into this thinking like. I wonder what they do with their eyes. I wonder where they're looking as they're, you know, racing for these world records that they've set. I thought again, that they have superpowers of perception, that somehow they're able to like triangulate where are they in space relative to the finish line and all of their competition. And they have this like amazing mental map, but they don't, I was wrong about that. No surprise. I can't hardly run at all. Definitely not like them so that my intuitions were wrong. Wasn't really surprising, but they told me is that they narrowly focus their attention that they are not paying attention to where the competition is. They have like chosen a target when they're doing shorter runs, shorter distances, it might be the finish line and that's what they're focused on or the next curve in the track. Or if they're longer distances, it's the shorts of somebody who's up ahead of them. They focus just on that target until they hit it and they pass it. And then they, they choose another target almost like they have blinders on or like this really narrow, like spotlight shining just on the target that they had focused on. Um, and that, that they think is, is what they're doing with their eyes and that's key to their success. So we thought, okay, like I can tell people about that and we can control what we're looking at, what we pay attention to. We found that normal people can adopt that strategy, right? They can like imagine a spotlight is shining only on a target. They can narrow their focus of attention and like not really pay attention to the distractions or their peripheral vision, What we found is that that induced a visual illusion, finish lines or whatever targets they focused on now appeared physically closer to them. They looked more proximal than they would if they were just looking around the way that they naturally do. It induced this illusion that like the environment is like closing in on them and claustrophobic people might not like this then, but so it's not quite that (laughs) experience, but it's like, oh, that finish line doesn't look so far away now. And it's not just a thought that they have. It's not just a judgment that they're making, but it's literally changing their visual experience. And that's what a lot of our of our labs work has been doing is looking at is like actually changing what they're seeing. Yes, it's actually changing their visual experience. It's inducing this illusion where they don't realize that like for other people that finish line looks further away. For them, it looks like pretty close when they use this narrow sort of tunnel vision approach. Now, that's important, right? That's interesting from a scientist's perspective, but it's important for real people in the real world because what happens is that when you create this illusion of proximity, that finish line looks closer, there's a host of psychological consequences that happens. Now, it doesn't seem like it's so hard to walk that far or run or run to it. It looks like it's within my wheelhouse of possibilities. Yeah, I can make it to, I can beat that next person. They're not that far away from me. I can make it to that finish line when in other conditions under other viewing experiences you might think no like i can't i can't run that far that's too far away for me to hit it so it changes that sort of psychological profile of possibility i think i can do it when we think we can do it just like that little engine that could we actually do when we teach people to narrow their focus of attention the way that those olympic elites have done it leads people to move 23% faster and say that it hurt 17% less. We make that exercise actually more efficient for them. They're running at a faster clip and they're not experiencing it as as challenging. Nothing about those distances have changed. We tested this in a really um, contrived situation where we set the distance and we measured how long they took And they can run faster and say that it hurt less and when they do that when they have that experience what we find when they let us have access to their fitness tracker apps and what they're doing after they leave our lab people go out for more walks and run in the week that follow they take more steps they move faster and farther even when we're not there like with our stopwatch monitoring what they're doing so that's a way that like you know we're connecting the dots of saying like yeah there are different visual experiences we can have as we go about our everyday life we can control them. We can induce these different like visual experiences that maybe don't map on to reality uh, and change what we're doing with our own actions.
0: So how, so how like, I mean, what, that's really interesting. It makes sense, right? And I mean, and people maybe that have lost weight in the past, maybe that's, a, that's another example of that where people are like, yeah, you know, if you want to lose 100 pounds, you're going to lose like five pounds at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they set these goals in these like smaller increments because then they're hitting them. I mean, I, and that's kind of what I heard you say is these guys, but they're using a vision. How, how, how would be an example of that from like a, a weight loss perspective or a big project? Let's say I want to start a company um, and I want to, you know, narrow my focus and use visualization as or visuals as a part of the process. Because I get it from the standpoint of running a hundred yard dash or something like that. But how, how does that translate into those types of projects or, or, or goals?
1: Yeah, another issue that stands in people's way is like temporal distance. So in this case, I was talking about physical distance, like you literally got to walk the walk in order to reap the benefits of it, you got to physically move further in the environment. But the other issue that crops up too is how people think about time, temporal distance. Mm. A lot of the big goals we have, we're not going to hit them today, we're not going to cross that finish line metaphorically today, or even this week, it might be something that we have to make choices today, to benefit us in the far off future. Um, And that can be really challenging. Like, you know, this is something I might realize in six months, five years, 10 years, 50 years. You know, if we're thinking about saving for retirement, that's another example of like, you got to make a sacrifice today. You got to set aside part of your paycheck today so that in 40 years time when you retire you've got a better nest egg going for you. Right. But that's really challenging because I've got to like pay my rent today. And I like want to go out with my friends today and I want to go see the Aurora Borealis and buy those tickets to Iceland. So I have to make, but I have to like make a sacrifice today then in order to set myself up for a happy retirement. And that's that temporal distance is part of the problem is that there's a disconnect. Like, Oh man, that just seems so far off. Like, I don't know if I want to give up today's experiences in order to set that like, future me up for success in this way. So what psychologists know is that we need to connect those dots. We need to like make that connection between today's choices and far off tomorrow's outcomes, more synchronous that there is sort of this blending so that you realize that my choice today actually is going to benefit, be beneficial for the far off future. We tested this idea, these ideas. Uh, yeah. So we tested these ideas again in our lab Um, I was working with a bunch of people that were about 20 years old, 20 in their twenties to early thirties. They were all on the brink of graduating from college. They all had jobs. And I asked them, are you saving for retirement? They all said, no, nobody's saving for retirement in their twenties. Neither was I wasn't going to blame them for that. When I asked them why they're like, for the number one reason, the most commonly offered answer is like, that just seems so far off, you know, Mm -hmm. like, no, it's just so far in the future. It's not relevant. Like I can't think about something that far off in the future. What I did then to try to see, like, can we connect those dots? Can we bring in that sort of psychological closeness between today and that far off future to change their thinking about saving for retirement? Um, So I took a page out of uh, another researcher's playbook, Hal Hirschfield, He's a professor at UCLA. uh, And I took a photograph of each of those people that I was working with morphed morphed that photo with an older successful person like i morphed one woman's face with that of maya angelou or betty white or dan rather um and showed them like showed them this movie of like as you age this is what you're gonna look like they're all horrified nobody wants to see themselves when they're 20 like with wrinkles and white hair Uh, except one guy who's like i think i look pretty good okay (laughs) so one person liked it most of them were horrified but then I started having them think, okay, like this is what you're going to look like, what you might look like in the future. What's that day going to look like? What will this future you do with a really awesome day? And they just started connecting those dots. What we found is that that brought a sort of psychological closeness. Now I get it. Like, you know, that who's going to benefit from me saving right now became a bit more tangible, concrete visual. They saw themselves in the future. And then the vast majority of them, when I asked them again, like, do you think, what are you going to do about retirement? Do you think you're going to start saving for retirement? There's no right answer. They're not getting paid for what they say, or they're not going to get extra credit in the class or something like that. But they all said, I get it. I'm going to start thinking about how I can save for retirement now, because we were able to constrict and make that far off future feel a little bit more um, present in the here and now.
0: Interesting. So just literally using a like visual representation of what they might look like mm-hmm. as as an elderly person gave yeah. them some, I guess, percep- pers- perspective or perception around that being them. Is it attaching those that, that idea of, oh, that that really it, it could be me. Yeah,
1: it became it came became more tangible and, um, you know, clearer of like, what is it that I'm working towards? Who who is that future me? Like, what's that even going to be like? They took something that was totally abstract and made it more concrete and relevant to them.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, I guess this like all goes to this idea of, like seeing is believing, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be like trite about it. But, um, you know, I know we're running short on time here and I want to get you out on time. And, you know, we've covered really the book, I know, covers four different approaches to to change our habits, routines and practices mm-hmm. for hitting our goals um, do we have time to touch on wide brackets?
1: Yeah, so that you know, that's sort of what I was talking about—the wide bracketing when we we're talking about using our calendar and, and thinking in a larger time frame. That was an example right. of wide bracketing, as um, like trying to get out of that narrowed focus. That is effective for helping us to run farther and faster, or for for constricting time and helping us Got connect it. the dots between here and and then, or in our far off future. That, um, But these tools that I talk about are tools, right? So that narrowed focus of attention isn't going to work for every single obstacle that you might face or challenge that you're up against. Just like a hammer isn't going to be the only tool you need to build a house, narrowed focus of attention isn't going to be the only thing to solve all your problems. We need to build out that toolkit that we have available to us when we're trying to troubleshoot our way through a tricky situation. So wide bracketing is another tool that we have available and what the book really goes into is trying to help us understand what are those situations or experiences um, that we are having um, that would lend itself to using this tool a bit better. Like this, I should use a hammer rather than a than a, than a screwdriver in this situation. Um, but having a hammer and a screwdriver in your toolbox is really important. You need to have multiple tools available to build your house or to build out your dream life. So that's what the book is all about.
0: So, so just to end on that, you know, you, you talk the tools and, you know, reading about them is one thing. What, do, how did, how does someone, you know, take the book and really actualize these different tools and strategies? Is it testing? Like what, what? how do you recommend people actually take what they read and turn it into real life results?
1: Yeah. The book goes into that because that part of the book is, to, is we talked about this, you know, at the beginning or, or mentioned it that like I tried them out myself with my own goals, you know, a couple of years ago when I was writing this book, I had just had my first baby, um, my first kid, I was learning how to be a mom for the very first time had the chance to write this book. And what I was realizing, like, I used to be really interesting. And then I had a kid. And all of a sudden, like, I'm not interesting anymore, people would come over and they're like, what's going on in your life, I used to have these amazing stories of these crazy people I met these amazing parties that I went to the and like these situations that I found myself in that were nuts. Um, and then I had a baby and all of that changed, And I was like, well, he pooped again, you know. He drank six ounces. So boring. I mean, really important and gratifying parent work, but like boring stories. And so I was like, I need to spice up my game, man. My stories kind of stink right now. So I decided <laughs> when he was a couple months old, I'm going to become a drummer. I'm going to be a rock drummer, yeah. referencing, harkening <laughs> back to those glory days when I was, you know, playing in this band. Um, I'm not a drummer. I am musical, but I'm not a drummer. I'm really not very coordinated. And so this was a big challenge for me, uh, especially because we had a brand new baby. We lived in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan until he was four years old. So like having to figure out how am I going to learn to be a drummer and like make this real like I was going to play a show and uh, invite people to it. So like I had to learn this thing. So all of the strategies I talk about, I tell you, how did I implement them in my real life, trying to juggle all these different balls that were in the air for me for a goal that was personally important to me, right? I'm not going to lose my job if I don't learn how to play drums, but the book isn't going to be nearly as interesting if I can't figure this out and I'm going to be super embarrassed. But what did I do to try to take these maybe more abstract concepts and really use them to try to make progress on this personal goal that I had? So check it out. And you can see what did I choose to do to, to translate these tips into practical, practical real life applications.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a technical term, by the way. I don't know if it's scientific or not for the, for the time period that you're talking about with the baby. It's called baby jail.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <you> heard that. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. got an eight month old now. I'm back in it, back in the store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: you're back in baby jail. I've been out of baby jail for a while. But yeah, baby jail is tough. You're serving yeah. your time. Once yes. it, once they once they can go to the bathroom by themselves, you're out of baby jail. Yeah. Um, well, Emily, what a treat. I mean, and, and by the way, for for the, the story regarding, like the, the story is super entertaining regarding the whole book's entertaining and super informative. And it's such a great, great book overall. I loved reading it. And I'm, I'm so excited to share it with our audience. So the book is Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. Um, what's the best way for people to either get the book or to connect with you on or anything that, that, that can help promote the work that you're doing?
1: Totally. I mean, you can get the book wherever books are sold. And uh, it's available everywhere. I try to post other content that I'm writing up on LinkedIn. You can catch me on Instagram. Those are good places. I write for Psychology Today. You can see me see more work there, too.
0: Awesome. Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate you so much. And keep thank kicking you. ass and taking names. And uh, can't wait to hear you play the drums.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: <laughs> All right. Guys, uh, listen, if you love the show, share it with uh, people that you know and love that need to learn how to crush their goals by using Emily's work and and some of our other guests. And um, yeah, give us reviews, give us some ratings. With that said, until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine and that's a wrap for today. Listen. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other.